television podcast you didn't know you needed. I am one of your hosts, Michael Shields, and I want to start by wishing you all a very happy new year. And while the calendar has turned over to 2021, to speak bluntly, in many ways we are most certainly still in the shit. But as always in times of strife, cinema and television are there to pacify the soul. And as are we, who will be continually breaking down films and television series, both New and old on the regular. Like many, quarantine has us digging in the vault, unearthing cinema of yore that is just remarkable. And today, we dig into such a classic. And film historian and part of the Welcome to the Party Pal team, Christian Needon, will be taking the reins. And he has with him an excellent guest in Dante Cimpaglia, an editor and culture journalist whose work has been published by the Paris Review metropolis architectural digest and wired amongst others this is a great conversation about an outstanding film so i'm gonna get out of the way and go ahead and take it away christian all right we're talking sweet smell of success the 1957 film with dante champaglia hello dante how you doing christian doing well uh this is a film that i've wanted to talk with you about for a long time i know it's close to your heart um it's a film that's in many ways really ahead of its time and a film that's also of its time in a really cutting uh cutting appraisal of of many things and i uh before we get into breaking down why this film is so great uh, let's just give the listeners a little bit of, of insight into uh, the plot of the film itself. Why don't you break that down for us? Sure. It's funny that you say that it's a, ahead of its time and of its time because uh, I rewatched the trailer, which I hadn't seen in a long time. And it's interesting because it has footage that's not in the movie and some alternate takes, which is just from a film nerd perspective, interesting. But the taglines are that the main character, J.J. Hunsecker, played by Burt Lancaster, his gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. And then at the end of it, it says the motion picture that will never be forgiven or forgotten. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's true. Um, 
so as you said, it came out in 1957, directed by Alexander McKendrick, written by Clifford Odets and Ernest Lehman off of Ernest Lehman's novelette, uh, which is a whole separate podcast, I think, talking about how that script came together. Um, but it's focused on a newspaper columnist, J.J. Hunsecker, who is uh, works for a newspaper, I think, called The Globe. And his he's the eyes of Broadway. And he's got this sort of um, sidekick, uh hanger on guy uh press agent named sydney falco played by tony curtis and the plot revolves around their kind of weird cynical relationship um very symbiotic uh but also being used to torpedo the relationship that jj hunsecker's uh sister i caught myself because it's it's very like paternalistic and it's you have to remind yourself that it's his sister not his daughter um played by susan harrison in her first role she's 19 years old in the movie the character is and he's trying to break up her relationship with a jazz guitarist played by uh martin milner and he uses sydney falco to kind of be the intermediary for blowing this up and that's what gets the the plot rolling and from there you just kind of luxuriate in mid to late 50s new york it's black and white shot by james wong howe great cinematographer great score by elmer bernstein the the script is unlike anything of its time uh it's this sort of staccato language that you just have to stop yourself and say did i just hear that right is that you know and and so um and it goes on it's 95 minutes uh, when I rewatched it, I was amazed at how quickly that moves. It felt like I watched a 45 minute movie, but it was 95 minutes in the best possible way. Like I wanted more. Um, you want to live in that world, even though these people are, are cringy and gross and cynical and, and awful. Um, well, but as you said, I mean, the, the tagline being a story you'll never forget or forgive um, cynicism, vindictiveness, um, you know, pessimism human nature is really kind of uh, at its worst kind of at, at the center here and yet it's it's really kind of has an entertainment and uh, and a verve and an energy to it that, that it's it's tough to look away from and is you know watching the film today it's aged very well I think because of that it's something that you know doesn't necessarily while it feels like it's of 1957 it doesn't feel like it's it's older or uh, boring you know it has it definitely has an energy to it and it seems like that that as much of the character as the characters are are at the center of that lancaster and curtis themselves new york city is just as much of a character and again you mentioned that this was uh shot by james wong howe um on the streets outside at night it feels very documentary like yeah it does and it feels like French New Wave, and it's it's sort of at the cusp of when the French New Wave directors started to to make things too. So there there are shots in the movie in Sweet Smell of Success that feel like they could have been taken out of uh, Louis Mail's movie Elevator to the Gallows, which came out a year later. Um, and I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I, I just wanted to go back to something you said about how it feels like it's of '57. And rewatching it, I don't think that is necessarily true because. Um, I went and looked to see like what else 
is around, what else is around 1957? And the movie that won Best Picture that year was Bridging the River Kwai. And that's kind of what you expect Hollywood to throw out into the world. The sort of grand sort of spectacle. Um, it's, it's, that, that movie's big in color and, and widescreen, whereas this is, is small and intimate and black and white. But it doesn't feel like the view of America in 1957, the height of the Cold War, it's pre, obviously pre-Cuban Missile Crisis, but um, it's, a, it's made at a time when everyone's supposed to be like rah-rah America. And this is really cynical about what 50s America is. I mean, white flight is happening. You don't really get that in this movie, but watching it now, you, you can kind of feel it in the background. Uh, On the Road was released the same year, which is a whole other part of 1957 um, in the 50s. And But even though that's like written about the 40s. So there's a lot of like stuff going on around this movie that I think at the time doomed it. it I was The budget was like three and a half million dollars and it only made something like two million dollars. And it's not hard to see why it wouldn't connect with people on a wide scale, even though it has two big stars in it. Um, because it's not the kind of glossy flag waving view of, of what America is in 1957. And that kind of goes into the point you raised about New York. The, the view of New York that we, I think that most people have is that it's, you know, it's Broadway and this is all about Broadway. It's about Times Square. And you watch this and there's a guy, a drunk guy older man getting thrown out of a club there are people sniping at each other and backbiting there's jazz clubs but they're super straight laced and i mean the the jazz club at the center the chico hamilton quintet in the movie it's it's mixed race but marty milner who's the guitarist clean cut almost like gi joe <laughs> you know looking uh he's not the sort of unkempt guitar jazz guitarist you would expect so it's a really, a really weird uh, energy in the movie. And I think that is, explains why it didn't connect because it just, there was so much going on that no one was ready to or even wanted to, uh, to deal with. But now, what, 65 years later, it's, it's all like we're bringing to bear like everything that's happened in the 65 years since this movie came out that we can we're bringing that to watching this movie and and i think it why it's why it has found its audience continues to resonate and continues to sort of perpetuate i mean the, the fans of the movie go from james mangold the director martin scorsese ron perlman uh saw he said something on turner classic movies website that it represents everything that's mind-blowing about cinema yeah and and that's i think that's true uh and i could see it, also about new york city that the New York City of today, where there's a just a gulf between the wealthy haves and the have-nots that's that's just widens even since 1957. Um, I think of the one the one famous quote J.J. Uh, Hunsucker is uh, is talking to Falco out on the street on this busy street. They've emerged from the 21 Club where where Hunsucker uh, holds holds court and does his business while the actual um, gossip that he writes about takes place in these jazz clubs in these seedier areas while he kind of has, uh, gets to occupy his own, you know, 
uh, rarefied, rarefied place there. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about this in the, the week that the 21 Club is actually closed down. It was did in, it was done in by the pandemic, but it's a great moment where where Huntsucker and, and Falco are out on the street, and Huntsucker looks around and, and at at all the the you know the city night to night chaos that's going on, and and says, "I love this dirty town," and the idea that he benefits from from the chaos while he gets to go home to his you know swank you know finely appointed apartment while falco has an office with a dirty bed in the back back of it and you see even the dichotomy between the two of them where you know he's the eyes of the city but he's looking up from on high while falco is on the the down low doing all the dirty work and struggling to get this to get what he wants um desperately from from Hensucker and being in his thrall. I think a lot of people in 2020 New York City can relate to that dynamic. But one of the one of the, the cool things about this movie is how sort of sincere about his place it is. And so so yeah, Tony Curtis lives in this Sidney Falco lives in this kind of rundown his he really lives in his office. He's got that bed in his office and his name is taped to the door, but you can see like the name that was there before scraped off and there's still some element of it. But where Hunsecker lives, it's not just any well-appointed place. He lives in the Brill Building, which is and really important to the development of, of New York and Broadway and Times Square and American culture and music. And, and so, of course, that's exactly where the eyes of Broadway would like loom out over the, and look over his kingdom and his domain. It would be from the Brill Building. So that was, that's really a nice touch on the movie's part. But I want to go back to that moment you talked about where uh, Hunsucker says, I love this dirty town. Because the reason that movie resonates, so I saw this movie for the first time in, in college, in uh, a film class in like 2003. And it, it just bowled me over. I had no idea this movie even existed, but I already kind of knew that I was probably going to do something in journalism. And this is a journalism movie. Uh, and if there's any doubt about it, it's it's completely assuaged in the first five seconds when you see the opening of the movie is this really propulsive bit of score. It's like, and you see these guys, I think it's at the New York Times building, the old New York Times building, loading the trucks up with bundles of newspapers. And the amazing thing about it, watching it again, is the foreman's like, all right, here they come. And the bell rings and the things come down. And like, not even 10 seconds goes by. And he goes, come on, we got to get these things out of here. Get going, get going, get going. So in the first 15 seconds of the movie, you already have, you're put in the middle of this, the pace of this town that the movie is going to put you in. And then you follow this delivery truck in this great shot on the street through downtown, through uh, darkened Times Square. And all the lights and the marquees and stuff before they became porn theaters are, are showing what they're playing. And it's just amazing. It's so, it's so visceral. And then the bundle of newspapers lands and that's when the movie starts. But that Dirty Town line, what I had forgotten about until watching it again, is when he says it, the th that opening theme music, that real propulsive theme music is playing underneath him saying it. It's almost like it's coming out of one of these jazz clubs that's around the 21 club and it creates this environment that i think anybody who lives in new york can can relate to which is just this 
constant energy everywhere you go. Yeah, it's dirty, but it's also energetic. And when he says, I love this dirty town, you already kind of know this guy's a dirtbag from the scene before where he's putting people in their place at this table at the 21 Club and, and sort of baring his fangs and his claws and showing his power. But at that moment, you're like, yeah, I love this dirty town too. That's exact, and, and it's in that moment, it's like everything that's right about New York. It's like it's it might be the most New York moment in movie history. <laughs> I like that, and of course that music provided by Elmer Bernstein, um, whose score for this is is yeah, it it, it is it's, so it's evocative. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's really great, and uh, the since we're talking about around that scene, there's another really great line that I love. Uh, so in the Twenty One Club. Sidney Falco goes to pay homage to Hunsucker, find out why he's being shut out of, of the column that Hunsucker writes. And he finds Hunsucker sitting at this table with a publicist, kind of skeezy publicist, a blonde woman, and this senator. And there's a famous sort of swing pan around this this table where he can, Hunsucker's like, oh, well, the, tells the senator, like, you shouldn't be seen with these people because everyone knows that this one, the publicist, is taking the, is taking this one, the woman, around for you, implying that she's just his his sort of side piece. But earlier in that moment, uh, Sidney Falco sits down, and he says, uh, "Oh, I'm." And the publicist says, "I'm Manny Davis." He goes, "Oh, I, everyone knows Manny Davis, or I know Manny Davis." And Hunsucker says, "Everyone knows Manny Davis." Phone buzzes. Except for Mrs. Manny Davis. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like it's very cutting in the way the way he he addresses people and and maybe we should talk about that as well, which is just the the repartee that goes on in this script um, is well, so memorable, that, so quotable. Yeah, and I was going to say that one of the one of the real strengths of this script is that you get it, the movie can be a little episodic, I guess, um, but. Nah, actually, I take that back. It's not really episodic, but the scenes like you, there's a there's a moment in each scene almost where you get the complete sweep of who a character is in a line of dialogue, um, either a line spoken by someone, either a line spoken about somebody. Uh, you just get everything. Like there's another really great line where um, Falco meets up with another publicist or another uh, columnist. Sorry at another place to try to place a smear against the jazz guitarist to finally break up this relationship with uh, Hunsucker's sister. And the this guy is just kind of pervy publicist, or sorry, columnist who, who's just kind of over it all. And he says, um, and he says, turn the record over, Sydney. Like much of the human race, I'm bored. And I'm like, so you know everything about this guy, and then he and then he leers at these women as they walk past. So you find out everything about this guy in that one line of dialogue. But that's another reason why this movie feels so kind of removed from its moment. Can you imagine anybody in 1957 saying in in mixed company, "I'm like much of the human race, I'm bored." I mean, that's just such a wild thing to hear somebody say. Yeah, and I think a lot of the 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 cutting remarks like that 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 are extremely efficient for the script uh 
you know, it, it seems the, the film, after you get done watching it, feels long. It feels like it's covered more territory than it has, but it doesn't feel like a long film. Feel, And no. I think it, it helps the pace of it. Um, I, one of the things uh, that I, uh, in, in re, re-examining the film, there's uh, A.O. Scott, the New York Times uh, film critic, said of... Uh, in his his revisiting of the film, that the characters uh, of a sweet small success speak a high toned street vernacular that no real life New Yorker has ever spoken, but every real life New Yorker wishes he could, and I thought that was that was well well said just because <laughs> of some of the zingers yeah. that are that are tossed off again and again. You know, before we even see J.J. Huntsucker, um, he's talking to Falco on the phone from another room. And he's uh, as Falco first uh, engages him. The first thing he tells Falco is, "You're dead, son. Get yourself buried," because he doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Um, which, of course, is a, mem- that- is a memorable line. But uh, it's a it's a great way of saying "fuck you" without saying "fuck you." Um, yeah, and there's another there's another part of that that exchange that caught my attention this time. I think maybe because John Le Carre has just died, but when Sydney calls JJ, he starts off with saying like. Can I come in for a minute? Now he's already in twenty one. He's calling. Hunsecker is sitting at a table in twenty one. Falco's calling Hunsecker from a phone booth in twenty one to for his own reasons. And so when he says, "Can I come in for a minute?" Physically, he means come into the the dining room where the table is. But there's also it's also cold outside. Tony Kurt, or Sidney Falco is he left his his over his top coat in his office, so he wouldn't have to pay for tips at each coat room he goes to. And so there's also, it's also literally cold outside, but it reminded me of that like spy who came in from the cold. Like there's an element in that moment, that exchange of, again, explaining exactly that dynamic. Hunsecker's in and uh, Falco is not. And he's, not, he's out in the cold, literally and figuratively. And that completely characterizes their entire relationship through the whole movie. And also, you know, on that note, we should note the the guy crafting those lines was largely Clifford Odets, um, working from an original script by Ernest Lehman, um, and it's, it seems that uh, Odets came onto the project when Alexander McKendrick was was hired on as the director, and apparently recrafted a lot of it. But a lot of that that the, that verve comes from, seems to come from him. Obviously, um, a famous playwright and director in his own right. Um, so many good so many good lines so clifford odets uh for anybody who doesn't know wrote waiting for lefty which i think is his most famous play also golden boy um but the script actually the, the reason ernest layman got got taken off of it was he got sick um he had like an intestinal problem and so they brought clifford odets in and there was a, a quote about working with clifford odets that i saw in alexander mckendrick's book um called on filmmaking where he says uh, and I'll just quote him here. Uh, Clifford senses, I think, that I was in this during. Let me take it back. Clifford sensed, I think, that I was concerned about the problem of style and explained to me, quote, my, di- my dialogue may seem somewhat overwritten, too wordy, too contrived. Don't let it worry you. You'll find that it works if you don't bother too much about the lines themselves. Play the situations, not the words, and play them fast. And I think that's kind of a skeleton key to this movie because it's very easy to get hung up on the one-liners and there's so many one i mean we've just tossed up a bunch but there's other ones like hunsucker says at one point uh 
my left hand hasn't that doesn't know has my right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years uh falco says cats in the bag bags in the river Hansecker says i hate to take a bite out of you you're a cookie full of arsenic um you know there's just one line after another that rat-a-tat-tat damon runyon style thing and also there's something there's also hold the holding that thought for a moment there's something even simpler which is there's another line that at the very beginning which or not the very beginning but after after falco has um carried out one of hunsucker's uh whims where he says you sound happy sydney why should you be happy when i'm not Something yep. as simple and, and kind of, of observant as, as, as that that really gives you insight into uh, his his dark worldview. Yeah, and it all works because you believe the situations. Um, sure, I guess, to A.O. Scott's point, we all want to talk like that, but do we really? Because like, to, to talk that way would... there is Some of the stuff is, is, is funny and cool. Like, I wish I could get away with saying walking down the street and or going to work and someone saying oh did you take care of that i'm like yeah cats in a bag bags in the river like that that's kind of cool but a lot of the, but the, a lot of the other stuff kind of belies the the sort of cynical uh nature of these people and it reminded me of a conversation <laughs> i'll just drop this in a conversation i had with tony curtis once um the the background to that was he was in pittsburgh in 2004, I believe, and I was interviewing him for a magazine I was working at, at the time, and and he was in town to promote Turner Classic Movies and presenting some like it hot. But I have, I loved Sweet Smell of Success to own a copy of the script in book form, so I brought it with me as a way to talk to him about it. And the one of the things he said was, um, I'll just read this real quick. He said, "I loved it because it was a movie that was made in the 50s that was unpredictable. The studio didn't even know what we were making. It wasn't until it was finished that they got so upset." They said they didn't know how they were going to release it. It was so anti-media. And for a while, it suffered like that, the early release of it. But the sense of the movie, the dramatics of the movie, the relationship of these two guys, who were motherfuckers, who were going to use anybody and everybody around them, that made it so unique. It wasn't that they were immoral as much as it was just that they were ambitious, both of them. And uh, skipping over one thing, he says, um, I like the part because... He talks about the ambition that Sidney Falco has. Uh, Sidney is was a good uh, Sidney was a good example of how he kicked the shit out of everyone around him to take advantage of them. I like that. I like the part because all of us do that. All of us are Sidney Falco with little subtleties. If a guy's going to hire you, you're not going to tell him his wife is fat. <laughs> uh, and then to he later on he he talked we talked about Billy Wilder a little bit around some like it hot and he mentioned. Uh, a movie that I think is part of this conversation, which is Ace in the Hole, which is a Billy Wilder movie. Yeah, with Kirk Douglas as a disreputable on the skids reporter in the in the Southwest. But he, but Tony Curtis said it's one of the most devastating movies ever made. So it's there's something in the sort of broader genre of of the media or anti media movie of the of that time of the fifties. But but the but the more specific point that he makes about these guys being motherfuckers and, but we're all kind of like that. I think it's right, which is one of the reasons why it's so fun to watch. And it's so good. Um, and why, again, it didn't connect in the fifties because this movie comes out in 1957. The country's 12 years removed from having saved the world for democracy. 
it's kind of high on its own supply and it doesn't want to see itself as as motherfuckers oh yeah well i it, think i want to see them you want they want to see the best of of, of americana so to speak I, you know and and one of the i think a point that 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 it's it should be brought up too is that the, the the media a big media presence that was kind of on the wane at this point was a guy named walter winchell um, when Lehman, uh, Ernest Lehman, right. who wrote the book, I guess, uh, was younger, he worked for a press agent much like a Sidney Falco and had interactions with Winchell, um, who was an arbiter, it feels like, a self-appointed arbiter of, of, of you know, the, of correct and, and, and incorrect in the celebrity world. And was and he, I think, yeah. just not to, not to interrupt you, but I think that he, there was also from the little bit of I know about him and a little bit of was reading about him that he had a similarly weird relationship I think with his daughter not with his sister but that's but that's I think some people have said that's where Ernest Lehman pulled that that story thread from I don't know if that's true um, but yeah anyway Walter Winchell is is absolutely the the one of the models that kind of looms over this movie and the other one being of course it's it seems Joseph McCarthy of the of the 1950s. Um, both those threads, the Winchell and the McCarthy, kind of come together with um, with this plot that that Hensucker, Hensucker and Falco um, kind of unspool to uh, set up this uh, jazz musician of who's going out with uh, Hensucker's sister to basically set him up for possession of marijuana and also as an implied communist in in Hunsucker's column. So it's kind of like the two worst moral moral panic things of the the 1950s are um, thrown against uh, what again A.O. Scott uh, of the times referred to as one of the whitest squarest jazz musicians in all of film history. Uh, a guy who is be ridiculous to to if you knew the guy to, to think that that would be true, but because the column says it, it is true. Well, just just to correct real quick, it, uh, the smear wasn't in Hunsucker's column; it was in um, this other guy's column, Otis Elwell, who's the that's right, the one who said he was bored. He's bored with society or whatever. Um, who then also the smear gets into the column because Sidney Falco uses a relationship he has with a. A young woman who has a kid in military school to he basically pimps her out to sleep with this guy so that this guy would put the smear in his column um again the levels of depravity it's like the worst kind of of behavior and you just feel so horrible and and there are absolutely glimpses of people in the world in this movie the the jazz guitarist steve dallas is one of them and uh at one point at the beginning of the movie he kind of snaps at falco he's like if you want information don't scratch for it like a dog ask for it like a man and he's all he's all upright and ramrod straight and it cuts to falco who's kind of hunched over in this sort of rasputiny way and you just it just gets right again right at who sydney falco is but i wanted to go back to something you said because it's interesting and i want you to talk about that a little bit is the joseph mccarthy thing i wondered if you could uh go into that a little bit because it's not something i had really thought of before I think it's an underpinning of, of the era. By 57, um, I believe we were either on the cusp of or past um, his the height of the House on American uh, Activities Committee um, 
hearings, which really went after um, and ruined the careers of many screenwriters uh, in Hollywood and, and in Broadway. And it felt to me that was was close to the thinking of uh, people of this time. The fact that that would be a threat that would be used as something to undo these uh, these people. That the idea of, a, of using the public trust of, of a columnist, of the newspaper, of the press, in place of the public trust of, of government, of someone uh, that, had, that had the celebrity power in politics of Joseph McCarthy, for better or for worse, but obviously malevolently, um, that, say, a J.J. Hunsucker has. Um, I think it's that malevolence that, that really struck me. Um, that the idea yeah, and- that that these people fear him—it's not—it's not even respect as much as as it, it's fear and desperation that yeah they want to be mentioned in good ways if they're mentioned at all. Yeah, and there's it, the communist angle is interesting because I'd forgotten about the uh, the red baiting in the smear um, because I don't know if that's part of like the note that Sidney Falco passes this other columnist uh, or if it's just like part of the columnist's flight of fancy to really stick to this guy. But the communist thing is interesting because on the tr- side of the, the newspaper delivery trucks is this big banner that says Huntsucker is the eyes of Broadway and has a big, big picture of his eyes. When Sidney Falco goes to the office of the newspaper to kind of get an early peek at a column that Huntsucker has written in his secretary's office, you see on the outside, she's in this small kind of aquarium office. It's all glass in the way that like modernist architecture was in the late 50s, early 60s. And outside her door is a really cramped hallway and against the wall, posted to the wall on this. So she's not even that far away, probably like 15 feet away from this wall, is this gigantic banner that is on the, from the side of the trucks that says Huntsucker if you want to read Huntsucker, read the globe and it's got his eyes. And then there's an eight by 10 of Huntsucker on her desk. And so there's this element of like surveillance uh, from calling him the eyes of Broadway. The, the image of just his eyes on these banners is, is very evocative of communist, anti-communist propaganda from the time. And then there are these moments where he's like on his balcony, looking over his domain which fears feels very uh imperialistic if not authoritarian but but to, what what really makes it stand out now um after going through the last four years and what we're dealing with right now is this guy wraps himself in the flag his he has a tv show and he goes on and on and on about patriotism and patriotism and patriotism and when there's this kind of climactic blow up between Huntsucker and the guitarist Steve. Steve says that to him and to a lot of people like him, he's a Huntsucker's an embarrassment with his fake patriotics. And that kind of cuts him worse than anything else in the movie, to the point where the next scene, which is back in 21, he can't let it go. He he's it's been he's recorded his show, he's got in the car, he's left the theater, he's gone to the restaurant he sat down at the restaurant and he's still chewing on this and he says to to sydney who's sitting next to him he's like don't you see that today that boy wiped his feet on the choice and predilections of 60 million people in the greatest country in the world and 
it's impossible to hear that and not think you're listening to someone like Sean Hannity or a Tucker Carlson or these people on like OANN or Newsmax who just wrap themselves in the the trappings of democracy and of the United States, but act in completely disingenuous ways to those things. Yeah, and and even even to another area of of that point, which is they deal in gossip. The idea of dealing in gossip and blind items, the idea that, uh, and again, going back to that, that Falco has interactions with different columnists who have their own moral, a, moral and amoral drives um, to get what and he can wants. I just, can I just say real quick that at one point, Hunsucker says that Falco exists in moral twilight, which, how, can you... Can you imagine anyone saying that about anybody ever, like in life? Like, oh, this guy I, I know who I use as a gopher and a fixer, he exists in moral twilight. I don't even think I'd expect to hear that in a mob movie. Yeah. I mean, the 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 spine on this movie, to the frankly, the balls in this movie, to get away with stuff like that is so refreshing. It's it's a kind of amazing. Like, I want to say that to people now. Like. You know, you're you're terrible. You exist in moral twilight. Yeah, and that really shows an insight. I think all those times where he um, seeks to humiliate and and um, minimize and um, kind of ridicule Falco in front of others is his kind of avenue of control. The idea of, of the idea of this complete psychological domination. He does it very overtly to Sidney Sidney Falco, and and one would assume other press agents that feed him tips. And actually, we see that a couple of times. Um, another great line is uh, at the Twenty One Club when um, he's holding court there with the senator and the senator's uh, secret secret girlfriend and her minder and, and Falco and all this stuff. And a guy walks by from a, who's another press agent, um, to feed him something and is quickly dismissed by Hen, by Hunsucker. Um, Falco, uh, leans over to the Senator and says, Senator, do you, do you believe in capital punishment? And the Senator says, why? And, and says, well, you've just seen a man be sentenced to death. And that's because Huns, like a dismissal by Hunsucker and the fact that he won't put you in his column if you are a, a, a press agent is essentially professional death. And so, and I, yeah. Can I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to correct you, uh, but to so that scene, there's like, I think you're conflating two things in that scene. The first is, yeah, because there, there is another press agent that walks by to kind of give him an item and he goes, he goes, yeah, yeah, I know about it. He goes, say goodbye, whatever his name is. And he kind of walks away. But earlier in that scene, uh, when, I mentioned that line about everyone knows Manny Davis ex is, is, uh, except for Mrs. Manny Davis. When the phone when the phone rings as the punctuation and that's in the middle of that sentence, it's for this guy who says that sport, little like sports cars or something are getting smaller and smaller in Europe and or somewhere and I think, and he got hit by one and had to go to the hospital have it removed, and everyone at, he and so Hunsucker is saying this you know out loud over the phone as this guy saying this to him kind of incredulous that this guy's saying this and everyone at the table is kind of laughing and chuckling like boy isn't this guy funny isn't the story that he's hearing funny and then he says uh everyone as the laughter starts to die down he goes you're not paying attention to the column you're not reading the column i had that i had in the let me say that again he said you're not you're not reading the column i had that in there last week and he hangs up the phone and then 
everyone's face kind of drops because it's like this sudden cruelty to this person. And then Falco leans to the senator and says, do you believe in the death penalty, senator? And he goes, you just saw someone sentenced to death. And it, and I only corrected you because the that like arc of that moment, again, really shows who this person is. Um, imperious, drunk on power, but uh, but also just like, just an, or the worst, worst kind of guy. Um, As Tony to Curtis would say, a motherfucker. Yeah, he, he's, he is a motherfucker, yeah. And the interesting thing about it is you never really know if he's earned it. Like, you don't know why people follow him, read him. You never get a real sense of the column. There's a couple times where uh, Tony Curtis re- reads out loud a, an item, but you never really see Hunsecker be a column writer or be a journalist. He's just this guy who has authority and power because sometime in the past before the movie started, he's accumulated this, but you don't know what it is about his column. Uh, and I, I imagine in the 50s, the Walter Winchell specter kind of did a lot of work to carry audiences to that through that. But now when you almost don't think about it, but because you don't think about the the situation of him not actually being a journalist or being a columnist all the other stuff is exacerbated like oh this guy's just a dick like this guy is just he's terrible to his his sister he's terrible to the people around him and uh and it's just ew like ew what a what a terrible person but going back to the mccarthy thing it reminds me that he Hunsecker so the movie is Tony Curtis called it anti-media there was definitely a a a, re, a reaction to it from press agents and, and columnists to say like this isn't what the world is like at, at the time and um at the same time it exists as kind of a, a counterpoint to the narrative of media at the time which is driven by someone like uh Edward R. Murrow who helped bring down McCarthy, which is the whole point of the movie uh, Good Night and Good Luck. But Edward R. Murrow is this crusading journalist, and he has a TV show, and he has a radio show, and he speaks directly to his readers and listeners and viewers. And he stood for, you know, this I believe. Like, that was his thing. And you don't know what Hunsucker believes other than his own vanity. And... So, like, I would imagine those two movies together would be an interesting double feature because because it kind of shows both sides of the 50s media coin, um, the crusading journalism and the kind of gutter journalism. But that's sort of where we are now, too, which is another reason why I think this movie continues to resonate. It's that that this side always exists and sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but it's always there. And uh, maybe back in the fifties, it's it's it was easier to to lose sight of it because it wasn't, you know, we weren't being bombarded by information all the time. Uh, but now you you really see it, and it really does speak to this moment. Um, not only in the moment, but also retroactively, I think, because this is this is what some journalists are like, some columnists are like, some press agents are like it's not monolithic Mm. well said and 
one last thing, uh, since we're on, on, on this note about uh, you mentioned as a good double feature. If one were looking for a double feature on this street level view of this era of New York, um, I'm going to actually end with, uh, let's, let's do a brief discussion about a film you brought to my attention, which I had not been at all aware of uh, called The Connection, uh, which was from yeah. four years later uh, by Shirley Clark. Um, I only bring this up because, you know, an aspect of Sweet Smell of Success takes place in these jazz clubs and the idea that um, that this is the entertainment that's provided for, for the nightlife of this era. Uh, the Connection, though, shows what some of these jazz musicians get up to um, when they're not on the job and the, the dark side of, of this era of, of New York City. Tell me a little bit about that film, if you could, Dante. Yeah, sure. So so The Connection began as a play in 1959 by Jack Gelber, and it was notorious in its moment. I think it was the Living Theater that did it, and a small theater company, but really important. And it was notorious in its day because it purported to show a character shooting heroin on stage for real. It wasn't mimed, it wasn't anything. And so uh, it had its sort of small circle of, the company had a small circle of, of followers and supporters. But once it had this sort of taint of notoriety, it got a lot more attention from the, the square crowd. And they would go and kind of, you know, almost like a, like a Coney Island freak show to, to see somebody shoot up heroin like, and then be aghast about it. Uh, Shirley Clark made it into a movie two years later, and Shirley Clark's great, a great director. She made uh, Portrait of Jason, which is a really, really complicated, for a lot of reasons, uh, documentary about a, a gay black man in the '60s. I think um, framed as a long conversation in his his room, his apartment. Um, she's. Uh, the sister of the author Elaine Dundee, which another just tangent here, the, the Dud Avocado is a great book. Um, not like these things at all. <laughs> but the but the movie, like the play, is set in a kind of flop house, uh, dilapidated room uh, in New York. And it's a bunch of people, some of them are jazz musicians, some of them are just junkies, waiting for their connection to show up and bring bring them heroin and the framing device of the movie is we're watching the footage made by a like a, a square director who is there to like again kind of document the freak show and they kind of goad him and he goads them and uh and then eventually the the shooting up stuff happens and the movies purports to show the director shooting up and then he becomes a junkie by the end of the movie or that's the assumption anyway but the movie is really, really dirty and grimy, and you can feel the you can you can almost taste the dirt. You can almost taste the the lived inness that hasn't been, the place hasn't been washed. These people haven't been cleaned, uh, haven't taken showers, haven't taken baths, haven't had a job, and it shows a sort of down on its luck version of New York that you just don't see. Which is one of the reasons why the movie kind of is amazing. Uh, another tangent here is uh, the Lionel Rogozian movie on the Bowery, which was this quasi documentary about homeless people in the in the Bowery on the Bowery in the 
late 40s early 50s i think maybe i, I might be getting the year wrong on that um but there's this undercurrent of new york movies and new york stories that ex would be considered underground i guess but thanks to streaming and thanks to blu-ray and, and home video and stuff is are starting to come back out so Shirley Clark stuff is available now and it's great and watching it it's like oh my god how did nobody know about how did nobody see this stuff how did how did this not be more how is this not more popular like and then you think oh well yeah no one wanted to see this back then uh no one was ready for that that sort of grim view of what it meant to live in New York for a certain kind of person that said though both films worth well worth uh, watching and revisiting. Sweet Smell of Success, 1957. The Connection, 1961. Dante, and can I just say, yep. Can I just say real quick before we end? We talked a lot on this about how kind of cynical the movie is, but there is a lot of humanity in Sweet Smell of Success too that shouldn't be ignored. And because one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the jazz musician and Hunsucker's sister have their final breakup parting, and they say goodbye to each other in this hallway of the Brill building lobby and they kiss each other he gives her this kind of subtle rub of her shoulder and walks away and it's a stick the state the camera stays on her as she kind of slumps down in, in sadness as the musician and his his agent walk away uh, away from the camera and they become out of focus as they get to the door that's a really humanistic touching moment in a movie that's not full of them but it really gives you a little bit more faith, you know, in, in the people around this movie. Because uh, it's not all just about a bunch of scumbags backbiting and trying to get one over on each other. Yeah. And so it's humanity in the midst of, of the oppressiveness of the city. Um, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a very good point. And, the, and there has to be some sort of redemptive quality to to watch it, this stuff. Otherwise, it, it would. I mean, it, the entertainment of it. I mean, the reason why the the I I feel the the film has has continued to resonate is, yeah, there is the biting stuff. There is there is the uh, the adversarial nature of it. But all like you said, there is that that humanity mostly of. Um, um, evolved with this that's summed up by by this relationship that's this this love story that's for not but still um you know something that's that you can take away uh from watching this great film um dante thank you so much for uh coming and discussing uh sweet smile success i'm wel welcome to the party pal appreciate it thanks it's happy to be invited to the party mm -hmm.